How are we doing today? We are going to be ordaining a couple of new elders in a couple of weeks, two weeks from uh, today. So Mr. Clem Ferris will be joining us, and we will be uh, having an ordination service on Sunday right here in, in place of a normal service. Uh, we will be doing that. So I'm going to start talking about that uh, this week. I'm going to talk again more about it next week, about why do we ordain elders? What is, what, why do we approach leading the church this way? We're going to look at a lot of scripture and talk about some of our philosophy of leadership and those kind of things. I'm going to look at a lot of, a lot of scripture. Now, why, why does church... I'm going to, there's some terminology that I will use that, um, you know, we'll use words like leadership, government, um, administration, those kind of things. And when we use, when we say the word church government, a lot of times we think of just sort of a judicial, a lot like an American government, like handling all the laws and making judgments and those kind of things. Uh, really what I'm talking about is the structure that causes everything to function around here when I use the term church government and leadership. It's very important that we take this seriously. I think there's a, a lot of times if you uh, read different authors and people, they'll, a lot of times you get the impression that there is the scripture is pretty silent about how churches should be led. But I'm going to show you today that that's actually not the case. Uh, there's a lot of examples of what God had intended in terms of his church being led and what was put in place. We see a lot in the demonstrations of what Jesus did. We see a lot about what Paul and Peter both had to say about leadership in churches and how it should be done. Um, and so we're going to. We're going to look at that. It's important because, you know, the way we uh, approach leading a church says a lot about what we actually believe. Uh, our structures, our systems, our way of approaching things reflect our theology, what we believe about God. And sometimes when we, we don't take those things seriously or don't uh, seek God on how to do things well, then people end up uh, missing out on their activation, missing out on call. Uh, we get into all kinds of Weird situations, which we'll look at some examples where there are unhealthy church leadership, unhealthy government of the church, and uh, we'll explain a lot about why we approach it from the perspective of ordaining elders. We are an elder-led church. We have a team of elders that lead the church, and that's how we approach it. It's how we've always approached it. We believe that that's a biblical example set for us about how to do church leadership. Early on in the first century church, you know, we take a lot of, we look at the first century church as an example a lot of the time. Because right after Jesus left, he, there was a commission. He had these people that he had spent all this time with. A lot of people had witnessed his resurrection. Uh, the writings that would eventually become the canon of Scripture are all based on people's accounts and eyewitness accounts of Jesus. It's why it became the canon of Scripture. One of the criteria for that was. Um, that there would be people that actually interacted with Jesus. Once we get into the second generation of believers, there's a lot of writings of the people in those days, but they weren't counted as the canon of the Scripture. And so we look to those writings to guide us and direct us in terms of how we lead the church, what we believe, how we treat one another, all of those kind of things. So we spent a lot of time reflecting on what did that first generation of believers do? What did they take from what Jesus had given them and begin to serve one another? And take this movement, if you will, this newfound relationship with God, and take it all the way to Rome within just a short number of years. How did that happen? What were they doing? What was motivating them, and how were they operating? So we, we look at that first century church for clues about what God's heart was for how the church should grow and develop, and what the attitude they were um, going to adopt in that process. 
We see that after within a couple centuries of Christ leaving, the church really began, the Christian community started to really bring in strong examples of Roman and Greek government, as well as going back towards the old Jewish laws, looking for ways to govern. And we start to see a priesthood reestablished, a clerical order, if you were, in the church. Uh, we saw a lot of that change with the Reformation. And then, of course, today uh, we continue to try and understand how it is God wants us to lead. We don't think of church government in terms of hierarchy here. Uh, I'm no more holier than anybody else in this room. Just because I lead a church doesn't mean that I've achieved some sort of uh, sacred spiritual status and then God sent me my membership card to be a clergy in order to stand in front of people and talk about God. I'm a guy just like you. We're all family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all equal in the eyes of God. He empowers each one of us. One of the major things that happened with the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, it was an old agreement between God and men. God said, I'll do this, you do this. But with Jesus came the ratification of a new agreement, a new way of relating to God. He put His Spirit in every person. He gave them opportunity to have access to Him. Everyone is an individual. There was no longer a need for someone to go to God on your behalf and make sacrifices on your behalf or relate to God for you. We see that in the very beginning when Moses was given the law, the, the people, the Jews said to Moses, no, you go for us. You go tell us, you go talk to God, tell us what we should do, and that's what we'll do. But with, the, with Jesus coming and the ratification of a new agreement with his people, we see that every single one of us is of indivi as individuals is to relate to God directly. Every one of us as individuals is to hear from God directly. Every one of us is to go to God with our needs in prayer and establish relationship and knowledge with Him. There isn't a hierarchy type of structure that we see in the New Testament church. It's not there. In fact, there's very, very little in terms of giving us titles and things like that. We do not approach leadership in the church and, and uh, receiving titles. And therefore, so-and-so is ultimately superior or higher up than I am. Really, when Jesus... We're going to look at some of the scriptures today, what Jesus had to say about that as well. Structure determines how things are done in the church. And it matters because it can enable or disable people and their calling. Great uh, principles are found in the way we lead one another. And when we adopt certain forms of leadership, there's lots of forms of church government out there. Chances are, if you have any experience other than us, you've had experiences with different forms of government. And there's different labels for those and different ways that churches operate and how they approach their leadership. But there's a lot of strong principles and healthy ideas and healthy ways of relating that are actually manifested by the way we lead. So if you're in a, maybe you've been in a work situation where you've had a very heavy-handed person over the top of you. And that kind of attitude, that positional leadership, we, one of the books that's been, that's shaped uh, me quite a bit in my attitude about leadership is one by John Maxwell where he talks about the five levels of leadership. And we've talked about this a little bit as a congregation, but the lowest level of leadership is positional leadership. It's where I sit here and I say, because this is my position, you need to do what I tell you. And often we've had work situations like that, careers, in school, whatever it may be. Sometimes as parents, we pull that card, don't we? Because I'm dad and I said so. And that's the way it's going to be. Because I'm the boss. 
But really, we know that in the long run, that's an unhealthy way to lead a group of people. We need to grow in our relationships with one another, being able to lead one another in a healthy way, in an influential way, serving one another. And so when we start to get too enamored with titles and roles and hierarchy, people start to aspire for position rather than for an attitude to serve one another and lay down their lives for one another. It matters how we lead the church. It matters practically. It matters theologically. So we have to ask ourselves, is there a biblical basis for the way we govern the church? See, we look to the Scripture as our guide for how to live, how to grow, how to relate to God, how to understand God's heart. We go to the Scripture. We wouldn't even be here if it weren't for the Scripture. There would be nothing for us to found our faith upon if the 2,000-year-old story wasn't carried on through the Scripture. We take the Scripture seriously in terms of looking for what is God's heart for us. So even though there's old covenants and there's old agreements and there's some crazy old stories in the Old Testament, it still illustrates a great deal about who God is and what His heart for us is. And so when we ask ourselves a question, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this in link. It's one of the things I share with people that uh, are becoming a part of the church. It's a foundational thing. We're a Bible-based church. When we have a question about what we believe, we go to the Scripture, and we wrestle with it there. So we have to ask ourselves, is there a biblical basis for the way we govern the church? How do we decide how the church should be led? What does leadership look like in the church? One of the things that uh, I want to talk about is terminology a little bit before I dive in. And I, I mentioned I'm going to use terms like government, terms leadership. Um, the service that we're going to have in two weeks is called an ordination, an ordain. Now, ordain is a word that's not always helpful in our understanding. The word ordain really is just to appoint. It's to point at somebody and go, you do this. You appoint them to a position. But in our hierarchical understanding, in the traditional understanding of the church, ordination was given status. It's actually something that the U.S. government recognizes, sort of. They'll ask things like, you know, when it comes to our complicated tax structure and how church nonprofit issues operate, they look at things like, are you ordained as a minister? Well, what does it mean to really be ordained? Well, it means different things in different traditions, but when we're talking about it here, we are simply talking about appointing someone to a position. We're ordaining them for that position. That's the biblical understanding sets apart a group of people to a special position or priesthood-type status. We don't do that. So just because somebody is ordained doesn't mean they have achieved, like I said, some sort of holier-than-thou status, and has achieved some sort of, they've checked all the boxes, and therefore they can be ordained as a minister. No, and ordaining really, on a biblical sense, is simply appointing. And we look at this scripture here in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And this is where we want to start talking about the idea of elders. With both Timothy and Titus, Paul was encouraging them to appoint elders in the various churches. The reason I left you on Crete was that you would set in order what is unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, or appoint them, ordain them. I think that there's a lot of uh, complicated issues surrounding the idea of ordaining because it, it, you know, vocabulary matters. We talk about this a lot. 
Vocabulary matters because when I say ordain, I'm thinking something. And when you say ordain, you might be thinking something else. What does it really mean to put somebody in that position? Another terminology issue that we're going to talk about is the word elder. A lot of people that are not familiar with church structure, you use the word elder with them. They think of somebody that's elderly. They're aged. And in a lot of ways, there's some correlations there because with time comes experience. Someone that's had a lot of experience is better qualified to lead than somebody that has very little. That's true. There's some truth to that. But when we're talking about elder, we're not talking about age at all. But when we talk about elder, we're not talking about it in the Mormon church sense of the word either. Whenever those young men or ladies come knocking at your door to talk to you about Mormonism, they refer to them as elders. I'm elder so-and-so. This is, this is elder so-and-so, those kind of things. But elder to us is somebody that has been appointed in, in a level of leadership in the local church, not to be confused with maybe some of those other terms that we see in our culture. I want to talk about why we adopt that as our way of approaching church government. And there's a number of, I think, pretty strong arguments for it. Number one is it is the consistent pattern for the first century church. And we're going to look at some scriptures on that. Why do we value eldership? Because the first century church did. This movement that exploded in the first century, carrying itself to various corners of the earth very quickly. There's a certain way they went about it. And so we look into those situations to understand. We see that there was a plurality of elders in so many places. I'm just going to cover some of these scriptures really quickly or ideas so that you understand how often elders are actually mentioned in the scripture. There was a plurality of elders in Judea and the surrounding area. In Acts chapter 11 verse 30 when they're talking about a a famine that's going to come. They gather an offering. Who do they send it to? In Judea and the surrounding area? The elders. Those were the leaders in place. James chapter 5, verse 14. You know, uh, James writes a letter. He says, to the, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to the Jews that are believers that have been scattered into all corners of the earth. And he assumes, we see in chapter 5, verse 14, that there are elders amongst them. People that are appointed to leadership as elders. He says, if someone, if someone amongst you is sick, call the elders. He assumes to the people that he's writing, which is all over the place, that they have elders. Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. Situation arises. Paul and Barnabas are in these fierce debates over doctrine with what they call Judaizers. People that were trying to reintroduce Jewish customs back into Christianity. And Paul argues fiercely with this, particularly the issue of circumcision. So then they appoint them and say, go to Jerusalem. And who do they meet with? The apostles and the elders, not the Jewish elders. Whole different concept. Elders led the church in Jerusalem. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, all in Acts chapter 14. Paul going around encouraging the churches. There's at least four there. You could even, you know, by extension, draw a lot more number of churches that had elders in them. Ephesus, Acts chapter 20. Paul's on his way to be arrested, eventually, eventually beheaded. And he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come. And so they meet with him, and he encourages them, and he challenges them. There were elders in Ephesus. Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, it's addressed to the elders, overseers. 
Crete, the island of Crete, just like we see here. What do they have Titus do? Appoint elders in the towns on the island of Crete. Northwestern Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. 1 Peter chapter 1 addresses all these areas. And then five uh, in chapter 5, he exhorts the elders amongst you. Those that are appointed to that leadership position. And then he goes on to describe his thoughts about how they should be leading the flock of God. Leadership by eldership is what they were doing. First Thessalonians encouraged the hearers to respect those that are over them in the Lord, those that are overseers in the church. Now, one of the things that, um, you know, when we transitioned, when, when I took over leadership of the church, one of the things we purposely avoided was giving me the label senior pastor. If you ever look in that, in the program or anything like that, you'll see that that's not my title. Now, we know that pastors are shepherds, right? But pastors are never listed ever in the New Testament as leaders of churches. It's not there. That ought to give us reason to stop and think. If all the times leadership is referred to in the scripture and it's not listed as pastors, what was it? It was elders. Now, elders shepherd, right? There's only one time the word shepherd gets translated pastor, and it's in the list in Ephesians chapter 4 talking about the gifts. These people that have particular gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers would be the accurate translation of that scripture. In fact, most of the modern ones, as they translate it, they eliminate the word pastor, and it's shepherd. Pastor is a word that we have introduced into our tradition and our culture as a way of communicating leadership in the church. But on the biblical sense, you do not see it there. That ought to cause us to think. Because what has happened in some situations is we begin to take one person's position, one person's role, and we start to elevate them to an unhealthy status in the church. To be the holy man. To be the one over all this stuff. To live, somehow mystically live to a higher standard than anybody else or hear from God in a special way. None of that is biblical. But it is our natural propensity to do that with people. But it isn't the intention that we see in the New Testament church. A lot of people, after we did that, you know, went away from using that word in that capacity. A lot of people said, yeah, you're still the pastor. Like, okay, I understand that. Like, if I'm introducing myself in a community somewhere to somebody that's not a part of the church, I don't have any problem calling myself senior pastor because the culture understands really what that means, right? But when it comes to defining actual leadership and the way we function in the church, we really need to struggle with whether or not that's accurate or whether or not we should be doing that. Ephesians chapter 4 is not a governmental structure, by the way. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers teaches us a lot of things, but they are gifts. Elders, do, regardless of gifts. In fact, the qualifications that we'll look at for eldership are character-based. They're based on the characters of the character of the individuals that are being considered, not gifts. Ephesians chapter 4 is a list of gifts. Now, are they, you know, people argue, I think, somewhat accurately that they're leadership gifts because they're meant to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but they're not necessarily governmental positions. You with me a little bit? Don't fall asleep. I'll try not to do that to you. Okay, so not only is it the consistent pattern of the first century church. You know, if, if Paul or Peter, those people that have eyewitnesses of Christ, 
the apostles that had spent time with them felt it were necessary to set up a hierarchical sort of you go to Bible college in order to be qualified kind of structure, they would have been talking about that. We would see the evidence of that in the early church. Instead of appointing elders, instead of calling the elders, instead of sending the gifts to the elders, it would have been the individual that was leading the church. That isn't how it were. That's not what we see. So we have to, we have to, before we embark that direction, we have to consider, do we have a biblical foundation for the way that we operate? I think it's such a healthy thing. Just in, your, in other subjects, even beyond this, you have to stop and ask yourself questions. Why do I believe what I believe? What assumptions am I operating on about what I believe? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And a lot of things that we carry into our life based on how we were raised, based on certain traditions, based on what country we grew up in, what state, all those kind of things. And we carry these assumptions about what the truth is or who God is. That's why we have to go to the scripture and go, is there a biblical basis for what I believe? And some things you will find, you'll kind of scratch your head and be like, why do we do that? I don't know. It came by tradition. It didn't come by the scripture. And so then we have to ask ourselves questions like, is that accurate? Is that God's heart for us? Is that what God wants us to be doing? Is that how God wants us to be living? Is that God's attitude about his people? And if we can't show that by the scripture, then we ought to have some serious questions about why we're doing it and whether or not we should be. So it was the consistent pattern amongst the first century church. Sorry, I forgot I had slides for you. Actually, I'm going I'm to hit on this a little bit. Again, in light of what I'm just talking about in terms of the scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul's writing to Timothy, he's instructing him, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. How do you do that? We have the scripture. If I'm going to stand in front of you and tell, tell you something as though I believe it is true, I better be able to give reasoning for why I'm telling you what I'm telling you, which is sometimes a lot of pressure for me. And we go to the scripture and we dig into those things seeking the truth. And it was Paul's instruction to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and the, and the teaching and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's very, very important that we pay attention to what we're teaching and that we could substantiate what it is that we believe. Ephesians chapter 4, after it's talking about you know, these different gifts to the church, to equip the church. It goes on to explain to us why do we have these people in our lives with these gifts. Then we will no longer be infants. He's talking about coming to maturity, that we're pursuing maturity in our relationship with Christ. And as we do, here's one of the results. No longer tossed about by the waves and carried around by every wind of teaching and by the clever cunning of men in their deceitful scheming. Part of our process towards maturity is that we can weather the storms of teaching that come our way. If you go down to the Christian bookstore, you, you see how many things are taught and written about, things you can learn about, different points of view that you can explore. And all that stuff is healthy in your pursuit of the truth, but you've got to be able to not be swayed by every wind of doctrine that comes around. If, if there's wind of change in doctrine, you better look really closely at why you should or should not adopt that kind of thinking, that teaching. We see in Acts chapter 14, this is just an example, 
of what I referred to earlier. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in a few churches. No, in each church. Praying and fasting as they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, as I referred to, Paul called for the elders that were in Ephesus to come and meet with him. One of the, uh, another reason to consider, you know, to look at about why we take eldership seriously as the form of government in the church is there is a lot of instructions about elders given to the churches. Again, I already mentioned in James chapter 5 where it says, if, if there's someone sick amongst you, call the pastor. No, call for the elders of the church to come and pray with you, to anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, pray for healing. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is instructing him about financially supporting elders, particularly those that labor in preaching and teaching. So there's instruction there. He goes on in verses 19 through 22, not to entertain flippant accusations against an elder, unless there's multiple witnesses to the situation, and in the event that they are, publicly rebuke them. So there is some uh, responsibility that comes with that. So there's instruction given to the church about how to deal with their elders, how to treat them. To the church in Ephesus, through Timothy, anyone who desires to be an elder desires a noble work. Paul instructs the church to look at the qualifications of an elder and to consider them. I'm going to read this to you, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the same condemnation as of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. They might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Those qualifications very character-based. Paul instructs the church to examine prospective elders as to their qualifications. Peter instructs the young men of the church to submit to the church elders. The writer of Hebrews tells his readers to obey and submit to elders. Paul teaches that the elders are the household stewards, the leaders, instructors, and teachers of the local church, Titus chapter 1. Thessalonians 5, Titus uh, 1, 7 and 9 as well. Paul instructs the church to acknowledge, love, and live at peace with its elders. Is that a... Am I persuading you yet? All of this instruction is in the Scripture given to the churches as to how to handle their elders, those that would lead them, those from amongst them that would lead them. The Scriptures exhort the elders directly, written right to the elders. Pray for the sick, as we looked in James chapter 5, we've talked about. Peter directly tells the elders to shepherd and oversee the local church. They're given instructions as to what to do. Shepherd them. Oversee them. He goes on to warn them that there will be wolves among them distorting the truth. I think I have this. Paul, he's, this is Acts chapter 20. He's called for the elders in Ephesus to come to him. He's given them final instructions. They're weeping because he says, I'm not going to see you again. He knows his death is coming. And he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He's exhorting the elders. Here's one of the things that we would take seriously. 
is a responsibility. He reminds them to do as he has done, working hard, helping the needy, being generous, just as Jesus had instructed. Paul exhorts the elders to live at peace with the congregation, the same as he instructed the congregation in that same passage. Live at peace with one another, he says. Lots of instruction in the scripture to the elders. I think one of the more powerful things, too, an argument on for the idea of having elders. Now keep in mind, if, if there are other forms of governing the church that exist, um, if you happen to adhere to one of those beliefs or think that's the way it should be done, then search the scripture for your reasoning. I've just given probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 scriptures that draw attention to the idea of elders leading the church. This is why we are persuaded that this is the way God wants to govern the church. Now, there are some, uh, there's lots of practical things about uh, eldership as well. Really, the idea of eldership, we, we would say, really harmonizes with the message of Christ, with the New Testament church. It works with that. What do I mean by that? Well, it says a lot about the nature of church and philosophy about how, how to do ministry. Some of the practical things about eldership would be, you know, and that I appreciate myself personally about it, is that the elder model promotes healthy principles of relationship. There's a balance of weaknesses. I'm not good at everything. I'm really bad at some things. I have elders around me to balance that weakness and vice versa. When, when you work with a team, when there's a group of you, there's a variety of gifts, a variety of perspectives, a variety of background and understanding. And together as a team, you're much more well-rounded in terms of dealing with leadership issues in the church. It's very practical in that regard. It lightens the workload. I dove into a bunch of statistics just yesterday about uh, pastors, basically, and the burnout rates. Only one in ten pastors actually retires as a pastor. I mean, there's just I mean, there was just lists and lists and lists of the statistics, and I found myself thinking, why is that true? Because in a lot of circumstances, there's way too much expectation and way too much pressure put on one individual. Chances are many of you have examples of that in your life of having seen that. When there's a plurality of elders, multiple elders, the workload is dispersed, theoretically. And hopefully we do that. There's real accountability. That's why we don't do the board type of concept with a senior pastor and do a balance of powers this way. Because this, there's, a, there's a striving for control that takes place. We want to be one team, one unit. When we make decisions, the idea is that those decisions are done in consensus. It's actually, you know, we, we're going to look a little bit here shortly about how often it is re, the church is referred to in the metaphor of family. The same is true in the way the church is led. Now, I'll tell you what, if I, I don't know how you husbands at home, but if you kind of pull the because I'm the boss card at home, if I, if I go home and I say, Janny, we're going to do it this way because I'm the boss, how well do you think that's going to go for me? How well does that go for you? And vice versa, we don't operate that way. We build consensus. We're a team. We work together to build harmony with the decisions of what we're going to do, where we're going to go, how we're going to do it. It's no different in the church. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Not one of us appointed to some sort of supernatural hierarchical position that's over all of our brothers and sisters. We're simply, it, we, we see this with the disciples. We, we would use the phrase, um, first amongst equals. 
When we look at the New, the New Testament church, and in those years following Christ's ascension into heaven, we see that Peter really shows himself as a leader in that situation, right? But never is he given a title that gives him some sort of unnatural position over his fellow apostles. Every time they're making a decision, like the council in Jerusalem, when they're trying to deal with the situation of circumcision, it's a team that's doing it. They're debating it together. They're coming to consensus. And at different points, certain gifts rise up. James stands up and talks. Peter stands up and talks. Paul and Barnabas are sharing stories. And together, there's this consensus built, and they agree how they're going to move forward together. There isn't one person that stands up and says, this is the way it's going to be. That's not how they operated. So Peter might have shown himself as a leader for the most part in the early church, and we would do the same. Why am I the senior leader? I'm the lead elder, really, if you wanted to say it that way. I carry the responsibility to make sure that the elder team goes in the direction it's supposed to go. A captain of the team, if you will. But in no way does that afford me a bunch of unusual powers over my brothers. And if I get out of line, they have every right to say, you're out of line. And there's safety in that. There's healthy relationship dynamics when it comes to that. It's real accountability. It's not just an authoritative positional accountability. It's Relational accountability. There's a lot of practical benefits to the idea of an elder-led church, and I think that's what Paul had in mind when he was appointing these people and responsibility over the church. As I just mentioned, family language is far and away, I mean, beyond, you know, we see that the church is referred to as a bride. We see that the church is referred to as the body of Christ. What are some other ones? The temple, the flock, those kinds of things. But far and away, the metaphor that's used the most is the family, brothers and sisters. It can, this can't be overlooked because it reveals the essence of what mostly Paul was communicating about how the church should operate. He was using family language. They often met in homes. We see in Acts chapter 2, they shared their material possessions. They ate together. They showed hospitality. They cared for their widows. They disciplined people when necessary. Much, much, very much a family dynamic in the way that they operate. That is the example consistently given to us. Uh, some estimates about 250 different times the church is referred to in family language. Far more than any other example I know of. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Paul's dealing with uh, the Corinthians. They were, the Corinthians were a handful. They were out of whack in a lot of ways. And one of the situations was they were lawsuits amongst them. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. As for you, brothers, this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 13-15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Jesus, famous passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're the, pe they're the people that are in authority under the law that came through Moses. They sit in Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. We see something in the heart of Christ. And it was his criticism often of the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they put themselves in that hierarchical position, looking to be commended and look good, preaching but not practicing what they preach. They wanted to be honored. They liked the title. They liked what came with the position. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be that. You have a teacher in heaven. Again, that eliminates this whole idea that there needs to be somebody between you and God. The scripture, particularly in Hebrews, calls Jesus the high priest. He's the high priest. We're all brothers. In fact, the scripture teaches that we're all a royal priesthood. Every one of us is called to be ministers. Every one of us has a relationship with God. Every one of us, wherever we go, is reflecting the light and the fragrance of Christ. And we all have a responsibility in that, not just clergy. In fact, you don't see anywhere in the New Testament that there's a distinction of clergy and layperson. Every single person is called, gifted, and challenged to participate in ministry. And yet we find ourselves here as a church 2,000 years later with a tendency to do as the Jews did. Put somebody, you go, Moses. You go, JR, and talk to God about things, and then you tell us, and we'll do it. You'll do it, right? Yeah, right. No, that's not, that's not what Jesus died for. He didn't just die so that a select few could go to him on your behalf. He died and went to, him, to his father on your behalf. He did it. He's the high priest. He's the one through whom we have the reconciliation to God. He didn't put that system into place of those positions and those kind of things. Last thing I want to talk about briefly, I'll start into this, and we'll probably continue with it next week, and you've already probably picked up on it a little bit. But the first century church, the early church, the instructions of the New Testament do not establish a clerical community. Unlike Israel under the old agreement, which was divided into the sacred, this is the thing about ordination that, that I really want to get across today. Ordination is not a sacred Act. It's not some sort of, um, it's, it's spiritual in the sense that someone is appointed to leadership and it's very important that we do and we lay hands on them and commission them and appoint them, but it isn't something that somehow sets them as this sacred someone different from you. They're still one of your brothers in Christ. In fact, this agreement from Jesus removed that clerical hierarchy. I think it's one of the major mistakes uh, in, the, in the Protestant church we see that many have adopted the view that the ordained clergyman is the one that's fit to do ministry. Preaching, worship, communion, weddings, funerals, all of those things. As though there's only someone that went to Bible college and received a certificate is the only ones that are qualified to do those kind of things. Absolutely not true. We do not believe that. Education is great. It's very helpful depending on what your gifting is. But in no way is it the defining qualification for ministry in the church. If that were the case, if the original apostles were really concerned 
that we establish these institutionalized forms of producing leaders, then that's what they would have talked about. They had a hundred years or so to make that clear to us, and we don't see that in their writings or what they were trying to do. They were creating a family. Brothers and sisters, those that would have people of character amongst them that would help lead them and shepherd them, all in their relationship with God. It's not a sacred right, it's simply an appointment. I want to read something from one of our major resources for eldership that we've used for many years. is a book called Biblical Eldership by a guy named Alexander Strauch. It said, Clericalism does not represent biblical apostolic Christianity. Indeed, the real error to be contended with is not simply that one man provides leadership for the congregation, but that one person in the Holy Brotherhood has been sacralized apart from the Brotherhood to an unscriptural status. In practice, the ordained clergyman, the minister, the reverend, is the Protestant priest. Biblical eldership cannot exist in an environment of clericalism. Each group, in every group, believers are empowered by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. There's direct access for each of us through one great high priest. Because of these concepts, we don't adhere to the idea that there are sacred buildings, sacred sites, or sacred personnel. This building is not holy. You are the temple. You are where the Spirit of God resides. You are the ones that were called into relationship with Him. It has nothing to do with this building. It has nothing to do with His location. We don't adhere to those beliefs. All of these scriptures and all of these stories, I hope, cause you to think a little bit seriously about how the church is governed and what we see in the scripture and forms of leadership. And next week we're going to dive, you know, not just making a biblical argument for why we do elders and for our form of government, but maybe some more of the details of really what a true heart of leadership really is and why those character qualities matter. Would you stand, please? We're going to pray. Father, we thank you for your scripture. Thank you that you have preserved your word the word is from your mouth, as it says of itself that it's God-breathed. And we know that your word does powerful things. And Father, I pray that the scripture we looked at today would continue to resonate in our hearts and minds. Father, if anybody's been challenged with these things, Lord, I pray that you would help them to, to seek you out in this, Lord. And Father, we thank you for rescuing us. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be submitted to some sort of complicated positional type leadership, but that we are a family together, serving you, living together, working together, having all things in common, and using your grace in its various forms to serve one another and to contribute and to all be a part. Father, I pray that you continue to lead us as a church. Father, I pray for your guidance in these days ahead as we take on some new leaders and continue to pursue your purposes in this community. Father, I pray your blessing on each one today. Continue to guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.